When you hear those sounds, what do you think of? For the lucky among us who have traveled in Scandinavia, maybe those sounds take you back to a day of cycling through urban cobblestone streets or along the canals and coasts of Copenhagen. Or maybe your mouth is watering thinking about a smorbrod. Mmm. My name is Kate Graham. And if I'm being totally honest with you, those sounds make me think about politics. It might be that I've been watching too much Borgen. Thank you for joining me. This is No Second Chances, a podcast about women in our most senior political roles. And today, we are in Denmark. I mentioned the Netflix show Borgen, but seriously, have you seen it? It's great. It's a political drama about the election of the first female prime minister in Denmark. The show gives a tiltillating glimpse into the underbelly of life inside Christianborg Palace. But it also includes a lot of moments that we have not seen in Canadian politics, like political parties coming together on shared policy priorities, or building a cabinet that includes people from multiple parties and ideologies. These are not things that we see on this side of the Atlantic. No Second Chances Season 2 is a virtual tour to countries that are working to increase the representation of women in top political roles, to understand what's working, what's not, and what we in Canada can learn. And in my humble opinion, this tour must begin with a Nordic visit. Why? Well, the Nordic countries consistently top the lists when it comes to gender equity, and they're often celebrated for having the happiest people and among the highest quality of life in the world. So why is that? Well, some argue that egalitarianism is built into their DNA, from the age of the Vikings, where women had strong positions within the social hierarchy, including being among the first to allow women to own property and vote. Of the five Nordic countries, Denmark, Finland, Iceland, Norway, and Sweden, all have had female prime ministers. Heck, four of those five countries have a woman in charge today. And by the way, the average age of those women is 44. Wow. So how did they do it? Well, let's ask someone who knows this story very well. It is my distinct privilege to introduce you to a remarkable leader, Hella Thorning-Schmidt, the former Prime Minister of Denmark. I have been in and around politics for God, almost three decades now. I start. I come from a small town uh, south of Copenhagen, in capital of Denmark. Come from a background where no one knew any politicians, not poly- political at all. Um, and I had never been introduced to politics before I went to university. Uh, and then I just started being interested in how I could be part of changing things. I guess that was something that came when I was a, a young girl. How can you be part of a change and not just watch and be unhappy with things, but be part of change? So I think that's what I came into politics with. Uh, and then I just took every chance uh, that I got to get elected. Uh, every time someone asked me, do you want to uh, stand for this election? I did. Every time there was a chance also to uh, to go into a hard battle for leadership, I did. And uh, that's how I became leader of my party for more than 10 years and then uh, prime minister as well. 
The first time I stood for election, there were people encouraging me to do that. Uh, it was a party leader then who asked me to stand. Uh, but the funny thing is that there were four men on the list, uh, and I was number six on that list, that this was an election for the European Parliament. And no one actually expected me to get elected. What they didn't know was uh, that when I stand for things, I get really, really competitive. So I fought with everything I had, uh, actually ran a really, really good campaign where I got all my friends and uh, people who knew me to be engaged and that and succeeded to winning my my first seat in the European Parliament with very very few uh, votes margin to the next uh, candidate so this was a really good example for me to just take that chance say yes when you are asked even though you're not sure whether it will end in failure I could as easy as easily have not been elected in that uh, election so Really, for me, it was a lesson in, in saying yes and taking your chance. And from then, you, I also developed this really clear idea that no one will appoint you. No one will appoint you just if you sit lean back, leaning back somewhere. You have to stand up and uh, say, I am, I'm ready to lead. I'm ready to stand for election. And that's why in, my, in the leadership campaign to become the party's leader, I was up against a very established candidate that everyone thought would win. Uh, and I came in and just said, I'm standing. Uh, and and that actually was rewarded with, with success, and very, but based on very, very hard work. So my best advice to women is don't wait for anyone to ask you. Stand yourself and also accept that uh, that failure is part of, of standing up there, going up there and saying, I want to lead. I don't know about you, but I find that hella inspiring. But I also know that confidence and the fear of failure can be a major barrier for a lot of women when thinking about running for office, let alone seeking a top leadership role. So I asked the former prime minister, did you ever struggle with your self-confidence? Yeah, I certainly did. And I do think it's very important to tell other women that the ones of us who actually get to the high office position, it's not like we are built in a different way. I remember clearly the first time I had to speak in a big forum. This was in university. There were loads of clever people. Uh, and they, I thought they were so saying so great things in such a great way. Uh, many of them, of course, being men. And I remember taking the floor for the first time, just being a, a first year student. And my heart was pounding. I was extremely nervous. But I pushed myself out of my comfort zone to say something. And what I realized is that what I was saying was perhaps not the cleverest thing in the room, but it was just as good as what everyone else was saying. And that brought me this knowledge that if I push myself out of the com in my comfort zone, if I deal with that nervous feeling in my stomach, then I actually create more courage in myself. And that taught me that courage creates more courage. So what I'm asking all women to, to be is to be courageous, uh, even though they have that imposter syndrome, that you look around the room and think, God, they're all cleverer than I am. What am I actually doing here? Put yourself out of that and put yourself out of that uh, imposter syndrome by daring things and bring, getting yourself out of your comfort zone. There's no other way to combat uh, uh, that nervousness and be more courageous every day. So even if we can combat our own internal struggles, what about overcoming the perceptions of others? One thing I experienced, and I, I know looking at other female political leaders across the world, that I've certainly not been alone in that. And that is that when you are a woman, people expect you to be 
marvelous in many different aspects of your life. They want you to be a good mother. They want to see that you're a family person. They want to see that you have a warm heart, that you can reach out to people, that you have emotional intelligence. But at the same time, they also expect you to be this captain on the ship that we have gotten used to connect to, to male leaders. So in many ways, you have to have both masculine and uh, feminine uh, qualities and that can be very hard to live up to all those expectations. I often found that when I was uh, using my masculine leadership uh, skills, for example, being tough and taking tough decisions and not being too very emotional taking those decisions, people felt that they couldn't feel who I was uh, and they thought who is this woman they wasn't sure about who I was and I think if you look at other female leaders it has been exactly the same for them I so often found that when I met people traveling around the country people were always saying oh god you're much nicer in real life that you come across in uh, in, in media and that was because people find it very difficult to uh, combine female traits and uh, you know emotional intelligence with being a tough leader and that they want both of those things or all of those things in a female leader but it's very hard to combine with also be a, uh, being a tough leader. Thorning Schmidt had two young children while serving as prime minister so I asked her like practically speaking how did you make that work? I do think that all of us women who want to succeed in whatever we are doing we also look. We always look at other women and asking, how does she do it? How does she make it all add up? Uh, and my most basic message is that you can't do everything if you're trying to be perfect. Uh, and I never try to be perfect. I have two amazing daughters who are grown-ups now. We had a great family life, but it wasn't perfect. I wasn't a perfect mum. I was a good mum, and I think I tried very, very hard. But I also felt that I I needed to work and I needed to to do something for my country. So I tried to combine all these things and there were some near misses. There were things that didn't always go to plan. But I always felt as long as I tried really, really hard to be a good parent, to engage in my children's life, to be there for them, to develop that kind of connection with them where they felt they could share everything, where I taught them that. Being something for your community is a, is a, is a quality in itself. Uh, I felt I was uh, I was good enough as a mum, and that was always my my goal. I don't have to be perfect. I have to be an okay mum. I have to be an okay uh, friend, uh, an okay wife to my husband, uh, an okay daughter. I don't strive to be perfect, and in many ways, I think that is the key to actually trying to do a lot of things. And I just found how rewarding it was both to be uh, have a political career, which was uh, very, very testing and trying and hard, but also very rewarding. And at the same time, uh, being allowed to having a family and being a parent. And I would not have given any of those things up. And to be honest, I think I managed quite well. So it seems. Research in Canada would suggest that these very barriers from confidence gaps to double standards to the pressures of family responsibilities have kept a lot of women from seeking top leadership roles. But apparently, not so much in Denmark. Why? 
Well, we have our problems in Denmark as everywhere else, and we certainly do not have an equal society. We have many female uh, leaders of, of various parties, which is ex uh, really, really good, uh, because it also inspires young girls to come into politics and engage in whatever they're interested in. I cannot tell you how many young girls I've met who have looked at me and seen, okay, you can actually become prime minister, even though you, uh, if you are a girl. And this, I was the first female prime minister, of course, and this is the first time they have seen that. And now we also have a female prime minister. So we have got a lot of equality, but we still have a long way to go also in, in Denmark and the other Nordic countries. So yes, uh, take whatever you can from the Nordic countries, but do not think that we are perfect. One thing that has helped me and I think had, has helped many, many women in leadership positions in, in the Nordic countries is the fact that Many women uh, see it as their, their normal way of life to be working. And with that comes a, a very well-funded uh, welfare state that, pro for example, provides for childcare. For me, childcare is perhaps the single most important part of women's liberation, women's uh, uh, opportunities to engage in the labor market and also in, in, political, uh, in the political uh, field that we actually have um, really good childcare all through my political life my children were looked after uh, by the public system of childcare uh, I picked them up every day I mean I was it felt very safe and it felt like a very good place for them to be also to have a completely normal upbringing uh, and I do think that I would not have been able to do what I did if I had I hadn't had public childcare that was affordable uh, and really felt like it was developing the children and bringing them forward in life so so for me this is the the most universal thing you can do for women's liberation is to have a good solid affordable childcare. Childcare, yes a whopping 98 percent of preschool aged kids in denmark are part of the country's universal child care system as a mom myself, I know I am not alone in saying that I have spent a good part of the pandemic reflecting on just how important childcare is. And thankfully, it is an area where major transformation is happening in most parts of Canada. But let's unpack this for a minute. In Canada, during the first year of the pandemic, half a million Canadian women were forced out of the workforce. We talked a lot about this in our last episode and the broader concerns about what it could mean for the political engagement of women moving forward. But you know what? The expansion of the gender gap during the pandemic, it didn't happen everywhere. It didn't happen in Denmark. In fact, their labor force gender gap shrank. So let's dig in a bit further. Karina Kasaira Pedersen is a political scientist at the University of Copenhagen. She's written extensively on political parties and culture in Denmark, including work on gender. So I asked her to help me understand some of the differences we see between Denmark and Canada. I mean, long-serving female prime ministers? A decrease in the gender wage and workforce gap during the pandemic? How is that possible? Some of the important aspects of the Danish system is, first of all, that we are a rather small, um, traditional, homogenic um, country uh, where a nation and state is uh, is overlapping to a large extent, uh, not completely. Um, we had um, uh, women's suffrage pretty early on, more than 100 years ago. Um, and I think that's... that's uh, important 
um, as well. Another aspect that's highly relevant is that we have proportional representation and have had it for more than 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 a hundred years. And um, while even before then we had a sort of like a four party system. Um, since the the seventies, we've had eight to ten parties represented in parliament. The old parties still make up the core of the party system, but new parties are able to form and and be successful. And um, and that's of course important for political recruitment and and for for representation. If we look into society, some of the system level characteristics that. Are often uh, put put forward are that we have the the universal welfare state, um, which which brought uh, women into the labor market already from the from the sixties. So we have a the gender gap in the labor market is is um, is, is international. It's small. The welfare also implies that there's a lot of of you know family social policies that are taken care of by the by the public or in within politics, and which is not regarded as a as a private matter. Uh, other characteristics that could be, yeah, you could argue that because of this, uh, we've had women in politics uh, for uh, for a long time. Okay, we'll get back to politics in a minute, but I want to understand the pandemic experience a bit better. So, why didn't the number of women at work decrease so dramatically? Like it did in Canada, so so nursery school and and kindergarten have been uh, there's been like emergency uh, measures uh, and and they opened up uh, you know fairly quickly etc and and there were emergency schooling also because in the welfare state a lot of women are taking up um, uh, the, uh, the the welfare jobs so hospitals uh, uh, yeah nurses in particular and and all this uh, healthcare that you need you know in in uh, old people's homes etc cetera, etc cetera. these jobs are taken up by by women so uh, they were not able to and i mean they were not sent home <laughs> um, and i think that that's um that's one of the reasons I think why we haven't seen this that, that the women were simply not able to be home. They were not the ones sent home and taken uh, on uh, too much. So we don't see the same uh, the same drastic gender gaps. And um, and I would be surprised if if the the women uh, labor force um, participation rate changes uh, changes a lot um also a lot of unemployed or you know were um, asked to um, to go out to the testing centers for instance so there's actually um i mean lots of of jobs for for people to do and i think it's important to to to, to look at kindergarten and and the daycare and schools enables women or pushes women some would say out in the workforce but since the welfare state jobs, both in healthcare and schools and kindergartens, are also taken up by women, it also provides a platform for political engagement or societal engagement. As the professor was speaking, I couldn't help but think, some Canadian listeners are going to cringe when they hear the words welfare state. It's a term that we seem to only hear in a derogatory context. It's quite the. Uh, it's quite interesting that the welfare state is something that's horrible because 
I know that we are, you know, paying a lot of taxes, but when when talking to um, people in non-welfare countries like uh, like the Canada and the U.S., then the expenses for kindergarten and school and healthcare, et cetera, are actually, you know, <laughs> the same amount that we're paying in taxes. But we pay a lot of, in, in taxes. Um, on the other hand, uh, kindergartens are uh, and and nursing are affordable and um, schools elementary schools are free um, high schools uh, youth education is is uh, is free university uh, is uh, is free and you actually get a stipend if you are a student to uh, to study healthcare is free if you want you need to be hospitalized it's it's free going to the doctor is uh, is free Dentists cost something, and they, the, the the state pays half, and, and you pay yourself the other half. So, I think the the important thing is that the as a collective, we 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 provide these services, and uh, and you pay it over your your taxes. So there's a lot high high degree of solidarity um, uh, there. Okay. So let's talk politics. The professor already mentioned a number of important institutional differences in Denmark, including proportionate representation and a party system that is pushed for gender representation. So what exactly has driven progress? It's quite important to to say that we have a a multi-party system. And and while the party system was sort of like only the four or five parties until the 73, uh, with a couple of, of of parties making it at times and not making it at other times, after the seventy three earthquake election, landslide election, um, the the number of parties doubled, and across the party spectrum, you see quite different or quite a, a huge variation in how they recruit, uh, and in particular whether they value. Um, for instance, uh, that the women are recruited as as candidates as well. So what are we talking about here? Just generally encouraging women to run or something stronger, like quotas? If we take out the the you know, broad strokes uh, of, uh, of paint, um, then it, it's quite apparent that some of the left-wing parties or left-of-center parties have been much more... Um, inclined to work towards uh, decreasing the gender gap in, in representation. These are the parties who had quotas at, at some time, internal party quotas, or at least you know had uh, a goal of, of increasing their share of, of, uh, of the underrepresented women. I'm sorry, had quotas? They stopped having quotas. I mean, some of them still have, a, I think ISF and the Social Democrats have it still on leadership positions so that the among the leader and the two uh, next, what are called, vice chairs uh, in both gender need to be represented. Uh, but on the candidate list, uh, the Socialist People's Party um, stopped having quotas. Uh, and when was that? I don't know, 15 years ago, something like that. And it was actually interesting because it was the young women in the party who didn't want that quota um, on, on party lists anymore. And it was voted down or, or uh, what do you call it, um, stopped. <laughs> and uh, in the at the same, I think it was at the same uh, annual meeting, they made the list for the European Parliament election. And on the 
first five seats or first five list positions, there was only one man, right? So actually the quota would have harmed women's chances there. Um, so, so I think that was, that's an interesting aspect of the, of the quota thing. What the Socialist People's Party have done instead is that they are deliberately working on diversity within their party organization so they're not they're not merely saying you know who are the party members who are good candidates a potential good candidates let's you know work on educating those training those etc but they're actually taking you know one step back and saying um we need to recruit uh, diversity or increased diversity among our members and uh, uh, supporters because that's that's where we get policy input that's where we get candidates so i think that's one way to to um, to an important thing to do now as membership figures decrease or are at a very low low level um, in denmark the number of candidates that parties nominate for in particular municipality elections implies that they are actually lacking potential candidates or candidates for the list in in several municipalities and, and in particular they're lacking the diversity that they would like um, to present to to the voters so I think there's one important thing to have a not necessarily quota, but to have an action plan uh, somehow and some goals on diversity within the party membership, since the party membership is still um, is still the recruitment pool um, for for at least most of the parties. I think that's an important thing to do. I mean, within political parties, this would be transformative. But what about the broader electoral system? I think one, one a minor note on the on the election system is that if you have a proportional election system and um, electoral system, and you have the option to vote for a person, which we do, um, and also the option for these personal votes to be decisive, this that that implies that it might that parties are incentivized to nominate a diversity of candidates and the candidates then have an incentive to to campaign and uh, and gain uh, you know be be visible and, and and gain votes because even though they are you know number 10 on the list they might still be elected because it's not you know according to where they stand on the list but it's uh, but, i mean they get elected based on their personal votes and and that enables uh, diversity to uh, a much larger extent than uh, first-past-the-post, uh, or even if you have systems where the party places the candidates. Of course, if the party has, you know, a super strategy, which some, some Swedish parties have, you know, where they put a man, woman, man, woman, then, of course, uh, the gender gap decreases as, as this party gets more, uh, more candidates elected. But if you have an old-fashioned... Um, local branch which puts up the five old men on top then uh, that's not going to increase diversity so uh, the election system matters to what uh, to, to to what voters are able to uh, to decide actually and whether voters want to make a change and if we see this is one minor note that if you look at, at, at europe 20 years ago or so 
in a lot of countries, women were deselected. So um, it was not, I mean, parties don't, didn't want to nominate women because they got fewer votes. Uh, that's not what we see in the in Denmark, for instance, and a lot of other countries now. Um, women, I mean, the share of women among the candidates are often smaller than the share of women among the elected. So it's not that voters don't want women. Um, it's maybe women that don't want to stand and uh, and, and and parties that don't want to nominate, etc. But it's not voters who are, um, what do you call it? Um, Deselecting women. Deep diversity strategies within parties, including party membership and selection processes. Hmm. A system where there are multiple political parties who have and sometimes share power. Proportionate representation, rather than our winner takes all first past the post system, so the government better reflects the distribution of preferences expressed at the ballot box. Universal systems like childcare and affordable access to post-secondary education and prioritizing the work of women, including during crisis. To me, Denmark offers many important lessons and some inspiration. But I also appreciate what our speakers today have said about understanding the unique context in which these dynamics have evolved. And as we will learn in our No Second Chances Season 2 tour, this is an important part of every country's story. No country is perfect. Each has its own history of successes and failures. And as Canadians, we are in good company in working towards addressing inequality in our politics and in our country. Thank you for joining me today. And I hope you'll join me as we continue our tour. Next up is Taiwan with many important lessons to share. So as we leave Denmark today, I would encourage you to reflect on this call to action from former Prime Minister Hella Thorning-Schmidt. It's a big one, but it's one that we can all try to embody in the places and spaces where we are. Everyone else has to ask themselves uh, how are they playing a part in being an allied to creating more uh, equality. And that means that every man, every woman, everyone who's engaged everywhere have to ask themselves, how, how am I personally trying to contribute to uh, more uh, equality between, between men and women? Am I, as a male leader, am I hiring women? Am I making a, a fast track for women in my corporation? Am I seeing the female qualities? Am I promoting that we get a diverse leadership team? All these things have to happen. So there's also, a, this is also a, a call for allyship from uh, everyone else because everyone has to take a responsibility for ending uh, the patriotic way that we build our society. And I'm not saying that to pass guilt or blame onto onto men, not at all. I'm, t I'm saying this because I think we can only create re real equality if, if everyone sees himself as an ally of this uh, endeavor. No Second Chances is a special project of Canada 2020, which has been made possible by the generous support of MasterCard and Margaret McCain. This episode was written and hosted by me, Kate Graham, and edited by Aaron Reynolds. No Second Chances is produced by the Canada 2020 team, including Carolyn Smith and Aisha Jarrah, under the leadership of Executive Chair Anna Ganey. 
More information about the project can be found at nosecondchances.ca.